Welcome to Exit Capitalism, Stage Left. This is your host, Manda Riggle. This podcast is brought to you by the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. The primary purpose of the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights is to educate people, especially young people, about democracy and human rights. This purpose will be achieved through, but not limited to, such practices as hiring an educator, sponsoring projects, sponsoring forums and workshops, showing educational films, operating a library, developing educational materials, and producing podcasts like the one you are listening to right now. In today's episode, we're going to be going over uh, some human rights news, including some kind of good news, uh, some recommended media, uh, and then our main topic today is actually going to be about Lucille Ball, uh, famous from I Love Lucy and Leslie Do. Lizzie Lou, wait, Desi Lou, I know words, productions. And then we're going to review some Maggie Fair Institute resources. And then we are going to answer a listener question that was sent to exitcapitalismstageleft at gmail.com. And the question is, why do you hate Elon Musk so much? So that will be very entertaining. Um, But first, we're going to start with some human rights stuff in the news. And the first thing we'll be covering, uh, which is something we typically cover, is just talk about the Supreme Court. And boy, there's a lot to talk about this month. As we're all pretty much aware, President Biden has nominated uh, Judge Jackson to be the next Supreme Court justice. And she just had her confirmation hearings where She was bombarded with such strange questions from the GOP, such as define female or a woman, in which Ted Cruz just went on to be transphobic. Um, And she was asked things like to talk about critical race theory, which I study English. I'm, I'm a fourth year, right? English PhD. I know critical race theory because it's similar to my field. It did start in the field of law, so it makes sense to ask a judge But it doesn't make sense for Ted Cruz, who has absolutely no idea what critical race theory is, um, to be asking anybody questions about it because his purpose is obviously not to learn anything, but to try to denounce critical race theory um, because in his mind it makes white people feel bad, which that's not what critical race theory is. But it's been an absolute farce of, um, of a hearing, which isn't terribly surprising. We've seen them pat good old boys like Brett Kavanaugh on the back. Uh, and we've seen them uh, really not question anybody who serves their agenda, which is having almost the opposite of a progressive court, like a regressive court. And I, I really think that is a great way to kind of characterize um, Robert's court is one that is regressive. It goes and it actually takes away rights that were granted to us. But going back to the topic at hand, which is the um, kind of confirmation hearings for Justice Jackson, it really reveals less about her as a Supreme Court nominee or justice and a lot about the GOP kind of agenda to strip away human rights. That's really what uh, these hearings have shown us. What's the next thing they're going to go after? They've been going after abortion. They've been going after uh, equality in marriage. Uh, Next, it looks like they're going to start going over are going after, pardon me, uh, critical race, right? They're going to try to strip that away, which they've already been doing. Um, but we can see this is like number one on their agenda. And they're also going to be going after trans rights. 
that's flat out what the question was from Senator Cruz, Ted Cruz, um, whatever you would like to call him. I am perfectly fine not being respectful towards his name at all because he doesn't deserve it. But I also don't want to be derogatory towards anybody who might share um, any kind of categories. He's he's scum, less than human, etc. Uh, those are all, I think, pretty safe to say. But it does really reveal that the GOP agenda and their hopes for the next Supreme Court or the next justice on the Supreme Court would be that it continues this kind of like regressive trend of retracting rights, of taking away rights, of undoing rights that have been granted to marginalized groups. And that is something that we should all be concerned about because as the famous poem goes, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the communists and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. And then they came for me and there was nobody left to stand up. That's kind of summarizing, right? Squashing. But this whole idea is they're going to keep stripping away rights of people until none of us really have rights except for white land owning males, AKA the founders of this nation. Um, that really seems to be the dream that the grand old party is once again aspiring to. And I know usually when we talk about the Supreme Court, I take a moment to kind of talk about current cases they're covering and how those uh, are, again, kind of like retroactive and withdrawing, uh, taking away rights that were previously granted. But I'm frankly exhausted of our current Supreme Court uh, in the U.S. And I'm going to go ahead and switch topics to something uh, slightly more depressing and, and international, uh, Russia invading Ukraine. So as a leftist, there's a lot of discussion going back and forth about kind of Russian motivation to de-arm Ukraine, but then we also see Ukraine targeting civilians, hospitals, schools. And so as I'm not over there, I'm not on the ground, I don't know what's happening. I don't think there's any real way to kind of support what Russia is doing. I don't know if an active invasion uh, is something that was necessary to counter Ukrainian Nazis, which aren't, I'm not sure how large of a problem they are because I haven't heard a ton about Ukrainian, like Nazism, nationalism, um, before this war kind of came out from other people I know who are leftists who are more internationally involved and more aware. It's not a big, as big of a problem as some people are portraying it as, of course, Nazis are always an issue is it an issue that um, needed a full country invasion and the bombing of, again, like hospitals and the murdering of civilians who aren't involved in any kind of nationalism? No. Uh, and one thing that's really interesting, being part of the left and looking at wars and imperialism, there's sometimes this notion that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if you're critical of America, then anybody who counters America is an ally. But that shouldn't be the case because everything is more nuanced than that. Um, we shouldn't support another imperial power or another power aspiring to be imperial um, because we oppose American imperialism. You could say, I don't support imperialism, period. Uh, you could say, I don't support invasions and wars, period. Um, and be critical of things that both Russia are doing and things that America are doing. And I think it's also perfectly fine and acceptable, and I myself am critical of the way Ukrainian refugees are being treated and welcomed throughout Europe, um, whereas we see people from Palestine still being kind of ostracized, pushed out, and the refugee status, you know, being 
and just the invasion of Israel, Israel into Palestinian land constant, constantly being uh, not covered in the same way that Ukraine is being covered. Same thing with Yemen, same thing with Syria. So we see, we do see a lot of racism in the way um, that refugee statuses and wars and invasions are treated. And I think this is a really good kind of illustration of that. It's perfectly fine to be critical and to say, I stand with like the Ukrainians and the Syrians and the Palestinians and not to say that, you know, Russia opposes America. Therefore I support Russia. I don't think there's any grounds for that. Even if you are against American imperialism, it does not justify Russian imperialism. Even if you do not like the United Nations, it does not justify what's going on right now between Russia and Ukraine. And I think um, one of my comrades kind of put it best and I will kind of quote him on this. I am for the people of every nation. I am for the Russians who are protesting against what Russia is doing right now. I am with the Ukrainians who are trying to stand up and defend their home. I am with the Syrians who are looking for a place to, you know, be. I am with the Palestinians and their right to kind of live and survive and have land of their own and to be recognized in their struggle against Israel. I am for Yemen. I am for the people who are struggling for self-realization, for self-governance, and for essentially peace and the right to live. Um, but yeah, I think it is very problematic the way that some people are covering Russia and this invasion um, and saying that it's justified through Ukrainian Nazis, which it simply is not. And we actually see internationally, and I think this is what's kind of heartbreaking for other places, we see that there can be an international response to kind of uh, counter and sanction nations like Russia that are acting kind of against national, international interests. The environment is, you know, taking major damage. The markets are taking major damage. Um, and we do see a blockade going on where multiple countries are no longer trading with Russia and no longer providing goods. We see things like Facebook, which is odd enough, um, sanctioning and pulling back and not allowing like Russia to use their services. Um, and so we do see that there can be an international response when an invasion happens that is not supported, where we can try to economically like starve out essentially, um, or blackout might be a good, I don't, I don't know the actual term blockade where we can do an international blockade. And it's something that was also done to Cuba. Didn't quite work there. Um, also it was against communism and they were able to provide for themselves. So that was a very good blockade, but the one against Russia does show that there are ways other than wars and invasions to kind of like de-arm and try to de-escalate. Will the blockade work? I don't know. Right now, Russia is kind of hurting, um, but the war is also hurting the international environment. Um, and then we do also see the kind of the threat of nuclear war and World War III taking place right now with Russia going and making sure that they are armed and that their their nukes are ready and they've made that known uh, internationally. And we also see um, kind of the implicit threat of the U.S. being able to kind of do the same. So it's almost like we're entering a neo-Cold War. Um, so welcome, I guess, to the 80s and Reaganism once again. But I guess those are just my thoughts on Russia. Again, I'm not an international expert. I think Nazis are bad. I think Russia is bad right now. I don't think this invasion should have taken place. 
Um, there were other things that could have been done. And right now, Ukrainian people who are innocent are being harmed. And I never stand with the innocent being harmed. I also recognize the hypocrisy of the U.S. media and of the way everybody internationally has been treating refugees from places like Syria, Yemen, Palestine, and not even recognizing their status or offering them any kind of aid like they've been doing with Ukraine. So let's go ahead and move on to, I guess, our good news segment, um, which might not seem like good news at first, but it is. And, and the segment about good news is always dedicated to my late comrade, Mimi Soltisic, who embodied this idea of hanging on to small victories in our fight against capitalism, because it's going to be a long fight. And if we lose sight of all the little things we've gained along the way, of the communities we've built, um, of the changes we've seen, then it might seem like we're failing. But really, the fight against capitalism is an intergenerational, international fight that might outlive us, but it will happen someday. Um, the current system we're living under has really been in, only been in place for 200 years. You know, we did have mercantile capitalism transition into in the early modern era, and then we saw that transformation um, in the late 18, well, mid-1800s, really, into industrial capitalism, which is what we're living under now, which is very, um, maybe just different, not very different from the mercantile model of capitalism. It's still based on exploitation, um, but in a slightly different way. But again, intergenerational fight. We can take the system down, um, but we have to look at our small victories so we don't lose sight. And this one is actually about something local. So there is a local worker co-op for people who aren't aware called Slow Bloom. There was a very popular coffee shop called Augie's and their workers tried to unionize, much like many, many, almost, I think over a hundred Starbucks stores have now unionized. So um, I guess another segment of good news within the segment of good news, go Starbucks employees. Um, but the workers at Augie's union or Augie's, sorry, coffee shop tried to unionize and uh, Augie's fired them all. And so they formed kind of their own working group called uh, Augie's union. And they were, you know, working against Augie's to try to be recognized and to try to get their jobs back. And what happened is they sued for wrongful termination, the employees, and they won. And the worker co-op thing that was known as Augie's Union became known as this new coffee shop, which has only been open this month of March up in Redlands, California, called Slow Bloom. Uh, they've been doing small things like delivering cold brew to kind of build up to this. Um, they've actually donated a lot to Food Not Bombs, which is always really nice. Um, we make our own cold brew from their beans. Sometimes they give us ready-made cold brew, which is a little easier. Um, but again, very kind people. It's a worker co-op. They really came from the ground up. Their coffee is amazing. And they've just opened their storefront. And within a week of the storefront being opened, somebody smashed a window with a rock. Um, and again, it was a long struggle. It was one, Augie's was a very popular coffee shop. So some people were upset, um, even though the coffee shop and the workers are the ones who um, kind of like did the work, the labor, they're able to kind of get those specialty beans. They're able to kind of continue the tradition of coffee making that they were doing, which was uh, artisan and delicious. I mean, they are very good. I, I have a bunch of their coffee um, in my pantry right now. Um, but even though kind of the workers did the labor in the design, some people are still angry at the workers for suing, winning, and opening their own co-op coffee business. And that resulted 
again, in a smashed window. Um, but what happened in response to the smash window was actually pretty amazing. Uh, within a day, the window was fixed. Augie's, or sorry, I keep calling them Augie's slow bloom, um, <laughs> went ahead and threw up on their Instagram and on their social medias what happened. And they had enough donations to get their window fixed within a day. People were going there and supporting them. Um, I'm buying coffee and buying goods to make sure that they can afford these repairs. And a local um, glasssmith? I don't know what you call that. Window worker? Uh, glass person? I mean, they didn't blow the glass. But the a, a local repairman came and uh, fixed the window. So their window was broken for a day and was instantly fixed. And they garnered so much community support. It just showed how valuable... Um, their store was to people in the community and how loved this new shop Slow Bloom is. And uh, they also have a new worker. They named him Dwayne. Uh, he's the rock that smashed the window. And he now has a little kind of like happy face drawn on him and he sits within their store. So it really took something kind of like negative or something that could have been seen as negative um, with that smashing of one of their windows. And it turned it into something that really pulled the community together and showed support for this worker co-op and for the workers themselves and for this lovely new store that we have. So I guess if you're ever in Redlands, California, stop by Slowbloom. They're awesome comrades. You can actually buy their beans online. You just uh, Google Slowbloom, uh, maybe Redlands, and you can uh, you can also follow them on Instagram. Um, their coffee beans are worth it. They also have cool kind of like unionized worker gears or just I guess it's not worker gear, just unionized gear. So like I have a tote bag and a um, handkerchief slash mask that I have from them. Um, they're great. So Slow Bloom, can't recommend them enough. That was kind of our heartwarming story. Something local, but something fun. And now onto our next segment, which is kind of recommended media. And I think I have changed the segment because I keep recommending things that are not reading related. Um... And I called it recommended reading at first. And it's funny because I'm just going to change it to recommended media, but I am recommending a book today. And that is White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare and the Logics of Genocide by Dylan Rodriguez. And this recommendation is kind of inspired by Ted Cruz asking uh, Justice Jackson about critical race theory. Uh, I figured I should go ahead and recommend a recently released book on critical theory are on critical race theory and talk about um, kind of like whiteness as a privileged point of view and perspective and one which needs to be deconstructed. So here is the description of White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare and the Logics of Genocide by Dylan Rodriguez. And I should also note, this was winner of the Franz Fanon Award for Outstanding Book in Caribbean Thought. So again, description. We are in the fray of another signature moment in the long history of the United States as a project of anti-Black and racial colonized violence. Long before November 2016, white nationalism, white terrorism, and white fascist statecraft proliferated. Thinking across a variety of archival, testimonial, visual, and activist texts from uh, Freedom Friedman's Bureau documents and the joint LAPD hiring campaign to Barry Goldwater's hidden tattoo and the Pelican Bay prison strike. Dylan Rodriguez character narrates the long post-civil rights half-century as a period of white reconstruction in which the national struggle to reassemble the ascendance of white being permeates the political and institutional logics of diversity, inclusion, 
formal equality, and multicultural white supremacy. Throughout White Reconstruction, Rodriguez considers how the creative, imaginative, speculative collection labor of abolitionist praxis can displace and potentially destroy the ascendancy of white being and civilization in order to create possibilities for insurgent thriving. This book has received praise in addition to winning awards. Uh, David Rodinger, who's author of The Shrinking Middle Class, A Political History, and also another book that I'm reading and I've recommended, The Wages of Whiteness. Uh, he has praised this book as being as thoughtful as it is fierce. And another person, Dorothy Roberts, author of Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, uh, talks about how this book draws from a deep reservoir of racial writing and activism. Author Dylan Rodriguez is able to kind of talk about what distinguishes anti-Blackness and racial colonial, colonial sorry, powers while demonstrating how they remain kind of linked to this global project of white supremacy. So can't recommend this book enough. Dylan Rodriguez is a comrade. Um, he is prolific in his writing um, and he really knows what he's talking about. So pick up a copy of White Reconstruction, Domestic Warfare and the Logics of Genocide anywhere. It's came out in 2020. You should be able to find it. And now we're moving on to the main segment of today's uh, episode, which is called Leftist Should Love Lucy. And this is where I'm just going to talk about I Love Lucy a lot. So um, be ready for that. I think first I'll go ahead and start with kind of my own personal background uh, and why I picked this topic or why I was interested in this topic. I know there was a movie that came out um, December of 2021 uh, called Being the Ricardos. I haven't seen the movie. I don't really want to see the movie. I've heard it does touch on a few true things, but it's not very well acted. It has something like a 6.6 .6 on IMDb out of 10 and a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I maybe if I'm really bored and it's like not on Amazon Prime, which is where I think it's at right now. And, you know, fuck Jeff Bezos. So I'm not renting from him. Um, maybe I'll watch it. But really, I'm more interested in Lucy uh, because it was a show that I think was revolutionary, not just for the time, but it invokes a lot of things that we can still kind of think about today. Um, and Lucy does have a history as being part of like the Red Scare and a supposed, you know, Hollywood communist, um, amongst other things, which I will go into kind of more depth about. But a lot of those things I didn't know when I was a kid. I Love Lucy was like my grandma's favorite show. And when I was little and I used to stay like at our house and be babysat. It was always on TV and it was funny, but it was also very pro worker. And I think that's not something that we really think about today when we think about Lucy is just how pro worker she was, but also how she really um, pushed back against that kind of depiction of what a 1950s housewife should be um, and what femininity should be, how graceful and quiet and pristine and obedient women were supposed to be and how Lucy is very much like none of those things. She gets messy. She's very loud. She's very, um, demanding. She, <laughs> you know, she, she doesn't uh, budget well, right? She goes and she buys $500 dresses and tries to hide it from, from her husband. So she doesn't have to return it. Uh, and yeah, there's all kinds of things about this show just as a casual watcher as a child that I recognize today as being, pretty radical for the time. Um, 
but yeah, there's more than just kind of my personal connection of watching it and seeing it as being pro-worker and uh, radicalizing or revolutionizing, maybe not radicalizing, this idea of what a woman could be outside of the home or even one that is stuck within like the domestic sphere and within the home. Um, but I really think that Lucy doesn't get enough recognition for um, how left she was at the time because she did face that kind of like what the committee of anti-American, un-American, sorry, un-American activities uh, from the FBI. She was brought in in 52 um, for the first time where she testified as part of kind of that McCarthy red scare about her own uh, registration as a communist party member. And she claimed her her grandfather who raised her was a socialist and so she did it to make him happy but she had never voted communist and she wasn't active in the party and she didn't have an active party status that was very clear when they looked into the records and so after twice you know being questioned um she was kind of not investigated again and she actively said you know she wasn't a communist she wasn't a communist she wasn't a communist and her husband at the time uh desi said the only thing right about lucy right is her hair um and even that is fake um, to a studio audience kind of after she was, it was kind of announced that she was investigated and she was found innocent, not, you know, blacklisted. She could still kind of produce things in Hollywood. Uh, and I know apparently this was depicted in the movie that has poor ratings. <laughs> um, average rate. I don't know. That's there. It's like D ratings. It's a D movie. I can't, I don't know. I, I can't say it was a decent movie or a good movie. I haven't seen it, but it, it was a D movie. It got a 6.6 .6 and a 68. Those are Ds. I teach. Those are Ds. Um, but they did depict uh, the Red Scare kind of portion of Lucy's life in that movie. And so it's kind of come back up again. And because it's come back up, a lot of people are just like, well, you know, she denied being a communist. You know, what did she do? She's, you know, not a lefty. Not that anybody ever kind of says Lucy was a lefty. But I really do think that if you're looking at somebody who has their entire livelihood, their husband's livelihood, their entire um, production company, Desilu Productions, is Lucy, Lucille Ball, right? And um, Desilu, um, it's kind of uh, their production company. It was an independent studio at the time um, that was producing their show. And everybody who was part of that team, from the people filming, to like the people writing, doing the lighting, right? Editing all of them. Every single job was at risk. If she admitted to participating, liking, having any kind of communist thought. So Lucy is a performer <laughs> and I'm not taking away her agency and what she said. I don't want to say she was lying. Um, it could very well be that she did just register as a communist to make her socialist grandfather happy. Um, but she still embodied a lot of ideals and broke a lot of ground as Lucy, just as herself, that I think should be celebrated. And I, I do think Lucy is somebody that should be recognized for her contributions to, you know, not just being a comedic kind of woman as she's depicted, um, or for being part of the Red Scare and surviving, but a lot of the things she did kind of contribute um, should be recognized by leftists and again, should be celebrated. I'm a fan. I liked that show. Um, I think it had a lot of radical messages and I do want to talk about three specific episodes kind of in depth, but first I want to talk about a few other things that she did. So, um, Lucy, again, she challenged this kind of notion of a 1950s housewife. She wasn't too happy to cook and clean. 
which was something that women were supposed to do. If you think about Mad Men, which is another popular show, um, we see that idea too of how kind of depressed it makes women. This is kind of in the 60s when they're coming out of that. But Lucy was still in the 50s where you were supposed to be happy doing those things. Um, I think one of my favorite episodes, which illustrated uh, kind of her breakdown of the modern housewife and conveniences, it's very interesting. Um, it's almost kind of like, and what is that called? Uh, Death of a Salesman. I really think that <laughs> I Love Lucy takes a lot of those same themes uh, where capitalism is kind of leading to the death of America, this long, slow buy, uh, living off of credit, right? So we, we see all of that with Willie Loman. Um, but the refrigerator, I, I remember the refrigerator in Death of a Salesman and how he finally stopped paying it off and then it breaks and they have to pay for repairs and they can't afford it, right? Um but the refrigerator was always kind of like in the kitchen in the morning when Lucy would make breakfast for Ricky, the Desi's character. Um, <laughs> she, she would, it always centered around the kind of the refrigerator and the stove. And there was this great episode where she was kind of protesting being a housewife because Ricky wasn't giving her enough of an allowance. And she kind of half asked breakfasts where she just kind of like didn't really toast the toast and, uh, she decided because there was leftover coffee, she would just freeze it. And I, as a child, very much wanted to eat this. And even though coffee is bitter and disgusting, plain black, I still drink it because I need the caffeine, but it wouldn't make a delicious popsicle. But that frozen coffee cup with a spoon and, and Ricky, you know, pulls it out and it's in the shape of a coffee. And he's just kind of like bitterly licking <laughs> his coffee popsicle. Um, but it, it's again, like this whole idea of, being a housewife being easy because of all these conveniences at home um, and Lucy not really needing more of an allowance, she really kind of pushes back on that and shows that uh, convenience granted by a refrigerator, right, isn't necessarily making uh, the life of a housewife easier. They're just expected to kind of like produce uh, more. It, it doesn't take away any labor in what you do. It just makes your ability to labor greater, if that makes sense. But I, I do remember that episode fondly. I kind of might go actually freeze some coffee after this episode um, so I can try that as an adult and see if I like it um, because I definitely didn't like it when I tried it when I was a kid. But there again, she didn't budget well. There's all kinds, like half of the comedy is centered around the fact that she is working class and her husband, despite being in, you know, quote, unquote show business, also working class. Money is a struggle um, for Ethel and her husband, um, whose name is escaping me, Fred, there we go. Um, money is an issue for them too, even though they're like, they're landlords, not just tenants, they still struggle with money as well. They struggle with repairs. Like nobody in the show until kind of like later where, you know, um, Ricky is more successful. They, there's always a struggle for money, uh, within the show. They are working class and part of being a housewife, right, was supposed to be budgeting that money. Your husband made the money. Uh, you, as a woman, were supposed to make sure that money stretched as far as it could possibly go. Um, Lucy didn't do that. <laughs> Lucy spent money. She spent money all the time. Ricky was not happy with how she spent money. And it was part of the comedy. And sometimes she would go out and try to earn her own money, which, again, those episodes where she was a worker, which are something I want to talk about, um, uh, you know, never really ended well for her and she never ended up really making that much money. So there was all kinds of conflict around being working class, even better off working class because of 
and even bosses, like there was always, um, Ricky would always kind of complain about the Tropicana, which I believe was the club he worked at, uh, and some of the choices that were made, late rehearsals, things like that. So it wasn't just like he was in show business and it was easy. Uh, he was, you know, low rung in the show of show business and there were struggles and there were struggles with being a worker. Um, she was also ambitious. Women were not supposed to be ambitious outside of the home. They were supposed to want a family and want to please their husband. Um, and the idea of this ambitious, loud, rambunctious woman really captivated America. And she, again, was something that a housewife wasn't supposed to be because she was loud. She went out, she did her own things, and she was disobedient. She did not do what Ricky said all the time. That was a very big point of contention. Uh, once again, in their fictional marriage on the show, she not only kind of went out and spent money and lied and hid things, um, but she specifically did things against what Ricky would say. And it, there were always those little cute moments where she's like, oh, well, you said it like this. And so I just kind of like interpreted it this way. So it wasn't really me disobeying you. Right. So that was kind of like another little tongue in cheek way um, that she was outwardly disobedient to her husband, which simply wasn't something a housewife was supposed to do. Um, this is, again, supposed to be this more idealized fictional world where um, women didn't get divorced and, you know, the June Cleavers, right, were just kind of stay home, make a mountain of pancakes and have very happy children. Uh, I Love Lucy was very much not that. And she presented all of these things, Lucy did, as a form of comedy. So she was able to kind of get away with a lot. And Lucy became a hit show. She was considered America's sweetheart, right? She wasn't, uh, I Love Lucy wasn't just my grandmother's favorite show. It was many people's favorite show. And it was because in like comedy is a way for you to be able to say things and do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do because it challenges social norms. And through this use of comedy, Lucy transformed the expectations of the American housewife. She presented a woman who could be ambitious, who could be loud, who could be flamboyant, um, who could be disobedient. And she got away with all of these things and got away with uh, a lot of things that would have been censored on other shows because it was funny, because we were supposed to laugh at it. Um, but that didn't make her any less of a hero for what she did. And there's another really big thing about the show about Lucille specifically and her depiction of Lucy, um, her co-star slash husband in real life, Desi, who played Ricky on the show, they were the first interna or international interracial married couple to be featured on TV. And according to, I think it was Lucy's book, and I the name's escaping me, um, she had to fight tooth and nail to get her own husband cast on the show. And her reason for doing it was they were having kind of issues with their marriage and she saw it as a way to kind of save their marriage, which is one thing, right? But another major thing is just the fact that um, the major pushback from studios was they said no red-blooded American girl would fall in love with a Cuban. So, so it, I Love Lucy made records in being, again, that first uh, interracial married couple uh and it, it helps that, you know, Lucy was married to Desi in real life, um, but they were really able to kind of like fight that and break that boundary. And they broke other boundaries as well. So despite not being able to say the word pregnant, <laughs> which what the fuck, like, but they weren't allowed to say the word pregnant. They were able to depict Lucy as pregnant uh, and she was pregnant. 
So they, they were able to kind of like incorporate that into the show. And that was a major thing because reproduction and women's rights and women's ability to reproduce weren't something that Hollywood really focused on. And it wasn't something that was kind of produced on any screen. So this whole idea of a woman being allowed to have their biological functions broadcast, right? Because reproducing is a biological function uh, that really any gender can do. But in this case, it's a woman being, produ being produced, being shown, reproducing, I know words, um, on the big screen. And, and that was groundbreaking for women's rights and for women being a whole person and not being kind of, again, restricted into this 1950s housewife, um, perfect aesthetic with beautiful, you know, well done hair, a lovely dress and dinner in their hands and babies that magically appeared, right, dropped off by the stork. Um, but being pregnant on TV was a really big deal. And they were the first to do that. And we also have uh, I Love Lucy being the first show that <laughs> pushed back against kind of these puritanical um, restrictions of not having married couples in the same bed on TV. And it wasn't right away. It, I think all of us kind of remember them having those two separate beds with their own little nightstands. Um, if you watch the show, but later when they kind of moved to a cabin, uh, they did have their own bed, a big bed, and it was one bed. And that was a really big deal because that was also the very first time a married couple was implied to sleep in the same bed and have, you know, sexual relations, <laughs> married couple, right, uh, on TV, which that again ties into kind of like the whole reproduction and Lucy being pregnant. They had to have sex to make that baby. Um, and so it is a show that not just pushed against the puritanical ideals of the 1950s housewife, but it pushed against the idea of puritanical everything um, because it implied that a married couple was having sex, which is just way too risque for shows that came before I Love Lucy, apparently. Um, but yeah, so again, maybe she wasn't uh, Rosie the Riveter <laughs> uh, out there on the front lines fighting for what have you, but she was changing the cultural atmosphere through her television show and through other television shows actually that Desilu produced. And I think this is a really good place to kind of bring up Star Trek, which I don't know if many people know, but it was a Desilu production. And so there's a whole kind of story behind this. Lucy saved Star Trek. Um, Lucy and Desi divorced in 1960, and in 1962, Lucy bought out his shares of their production company, Desi Lee Productions, making her the head of the largest independent studio in Hollywood. Shortly after that, Gene Roddenberry couldn't find a home for his sci-fi show. It had been rejected by CBS. Um, Lucy was under the impression that it was like a traveling, uh, like, almost, I'm trying to remember, it was, it was kind of like a traveling, like, circus-y show. Um, something that was more like a, uh, band of performers going through space. She wasn't really a hundred percent clear maybe on what the show was, but it did get a, an order for an episode, uh, by NBC in 1964 and other producers and executives in Desilu were balking. The show had already been rejected by CBS. They weren't really clear on what it was, but Lucy talked to Roddenberry and she believed in the project. And so she overrode all of the executives, all of the producers, all of these people saying, save your money. And she produced the first episode. Um, it's, 
I mean, now we know it as the first episode. If you've ever watched Star Trek, you've seen what it is. Um, and it was enough to get NBC to order another few episodes. And those became the first episodes to air with Captain Kirk and Spock and the cast that we know. And it's really interesting because a lot of people have said without Lucy, there would be no Star Trek. It would have never been produced and it would have never found a home. Other production companies didn't want to touch it and other studios already pulled away from it and rejected the idea. You know, it was it a perfect show? No, but it was international space communism where mankind grew out of their need for capitalism and exploitation and instead they embraced curiosity and their differences to explore the world. Um... And there were some troubling themes. I, I Again, not a perfect show. There were troubling themes of colonialism, like throughout the whole thing, and imperialism. I mean, the idea was not to affect other cultures, but like Captain Kirk fucked every alien he saw pretty much um, with tits or sort of tits. No, yeah. Every, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, he was, <laughs> he did. Um, but it did kind of introduce this idea of international unity, racial equality, mutual aid and support. Um, the system, again, outside of the need for uh, money. I believe the show even depicted them all as vegetarians, if I'm remembering correctly. Like they have a food replicator and they no longer harm animals. Um, like nobody was really ordering or eating a steak, which is another interesting kind of thing about the show. Um, but most importantly, right... It also was another first. So we saw in I Love Lucy that first uh, interracial marriage. We saw the first pregnant woman. We saw the first married couple sharing a bed. And in Star Trek, we have the first kiss between a black woman and a white man, uh, Lieutenant Aura and Captain Kirk. It was a first in a lot of ways, but there is kind of like this tradition uh, for Lucy to kind of be a pioneer in a lot of these kind of interracial areas. Uh, and whether that's because of her own marriage and love for Desi you know, even though they divorced, it was said that she still had a very deep love for Desi who had alcohol problems and adultery problems. And I think that's well documented everywhere. Like that's not, that's not a surprise to anybody. It was all over the tabloids at the time. It was talked about later. She talked about it in her book, but she still loved him as a person and cared about him. She, she apparently cried very, very hard when he passed away before her. Um, but you know, she did really push for equality and for, treating workers fairly and for all of these kind of like interracial pro women things to be happening on TV. And that gets me to kind of, I guess the nitty gritty and looking at individual episodes of I love Lucy. And for this episode, I really want to focus on three very popular episodes, not just because they're ones that stand up in my mind, but because I think they're ones that more people are familiar with. So I don't necessarily have to describe the entire episode for the points to be made. I'm just going to give a summary and kind of talk about these messages and how I see them as being um, very kind of pro-worker or, you know, very critical of kind of like how an industry or the industries treat workers. And those three episodes are Lucy's Italian movie. That's the one where she kind of like stomps grapes. Um, she kind of falls in the grave. She gets covered in grape juice. Uh, I believe behind the scenes, it's also like the infamous episode where she almost kind of like drowned in grape juice. Maybe not. She she choked. I'm not sure how accurate drowned is, but that's kind of what I've read. 
Another episode that I want to talk about is Lucy and the Chocolate Factory, which is that, again, kind of famous scene where she and Ethel are working an assembly line for chocolates and they keep ramping up production and um, it gets to be too much for them to kind of like package. And so Lucy just starts like eating the chocolates, stuffing them down her shirt, putting them in her pockets, like just so it looks like the conveyor belt is clearer um, than it actually is. And like she's keeping up with production when really she and Ethel are just like unable to keep up with the how fast the the line moves and the final episode i i kind of want to talk about here is the vitamina vegemin episode the one where lucy is working in a commercial for vitamina vitamina sorry i i had to look this up i always thought it was vita vita vegemin like three v's but apparently it's vitamita vegemin um, it's not Vita, it's Mita with an M. So if I, if I say it slightly wrong, it's because for like 30 years, I've apparently been thinking of it as the wrong thing, but it's Vitamita Vegemin episode where Lucy gets drunk during a vitamin commercial shoot because there's alcohol in the, you know, vitamin syrup and she keeps taking it shoot after shoot after shoot and getting more and more and more drunk to where she can't even say Vitamita Vegemin which is extraordinarily difficult to say on its own anyway. So again, well portrayed as part of a movie shoot. So it's not really supposed to be um, Lucy working in a great field. Um, but in Lucy's Italian movie, she's shown how to do this by workers, the stomping of the grapes uh, and how like some grapes were stomped to be turned to line or to turn into wine, not line. Um, and in her signature comedic fashion, she shows how exhausting this physical labor is. So as a child watching this, you know, it was funny. Um, I got the humor of the situation, but now I kind of also appreciate how it's showing the amount of work that goes into artisan goods and things that we consume. You know, when we look at, you know, non like hand-pressed grapes, right? Or not hand-pressed, I should say, but uh, wine produced in an old style, in the older style, pre-industrial. Here we go. I know, I know terms. Pre-industrialized production of wine, it took a lot of intensive labor and it was often women's labor. And that's really what this depicted is just like women's contribution to the farming industry and just the physical exhaustion that it takes to produce things before industrialization. And again, maybe that wasn't the the main point. Like she's sitting there like, how can I, you know, depict um, the exhausting labor of women that often went unrecognized in like goods that were produced at a higher like price point, right? Because things that are produced assembly line and market lines tend to be kind of cheaper than things that are hand produced or um, done small scale, like the stomping of grapes into wine. Um, but it's definitely kind of woven in there. So maybe it was meant to be comedic, but it was also kind of critical. And I can't help but think, you know, being raised by a socialist and being registered as a communist, despite, you know, not being active in the party, kind of led her to be pro-labor in a lot of her depictions of shows. And Lucy wasn't just, you know, pro the artisan laborer, the physical person in the field who was doing this kind of work. Um, although I think that episode really does depict that. She also was critical of industrialization. And we see this in Lucy and the Chocolate Factory, um, where she and Ethel just fail miserably to work this factory line. And again, this kind of... Um, 
touches on a lot of themes that are still important today, where this idea of industrialization and this idea of the assembly line was supposed to make labor easier for workers. But what we really see is capitalist greed, where, you know, in that factory, they could produce chocolate at 100 times the rate they could have before because of the assembly line, because of industrialization. But that's not good enough because they push that line. They make it go too fast for workers to keep up. They make it to where it's not just about producing what they could have in the past at an easier rate for the worker and giving the worker more leisure and calm time, more time to kind of check the products for quality control, right? It's about ramping up production, going as fast as possible and squeezing every minute of labor you can, every movement you can out of the worker on the assembly line to produce more and more and more in this never ending drive to just never stop production. And Again, it's presented as comedic. Like, it's funny. They're stuffing their face with chocolate. They're, you know, stuffing them in their bra. They're kind of throwing them behind them. They're doing everything they can to make it look like they are one with the machine. They can move as fast as the machine. And the it's tongue-in-cheek. It's supposed to be that Lucy and Ethel um, don't know what they're doing. They kind of lied to to get their used job positions and said they've they've done it before and they can handle it. Um, and it's implied that other workers can kind of keep up with that pace and it's just them you know, not being very good at it because they're housewives. Um, but really, I, I feel that it just depicts the impossible standards of labor that were introduced by industrialization. And we see a lot of that going on today when we talk about like McDonald's workers being replaced by uh, automatic like ordering machines and where we see, you know, tellers at the grocery store being replaced by automatic checkout machines instead of like making the worker's job easier. We use industrialization to push the worker or to push the worker out. Um, and so the capitalist is the one who retains all the rights and all the profit and the worker gets either worked to extremes like we see in Lucy, or as we see today, get kind of like let go. Um, and they try to kind of, Today, they try to say it's related to trying to make a living wage, but in reality, industrialization has shown us and modernization has shown us that these jobs are going to be replaced no matter what. Um, and people are going to be pushed to their limit of production for the sake of profit, even though we've been producing more and we've been producing faster than ever before. And so I, again, funny episode, a lot of what happens in I Love Lucy, again, is humorous. And it's because of that humor that they're able to kind of get away with the critiques that they have. And then the final episode I kind of wanted to touch on was that Vitamina Vegemin episode. And this is something that really didn't hit me until I was older. And I kind of knew the story of people like Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland and how studios drugged them for performances. Um, Judy Garland said in The Wizard of Oz, they gave her uppers to be peppy in the morning and to per perform. And they gave her downers at night so she could go to rest and get up the next day and do it again. Marilyn Monroe said the same thing. The studios were giving her uppers to perform and downers to rest. There was a dangerous mixture of drugs that women in the industry were being fed by studios in order to make them produce. So in the Vitamita Vegemin episode, Lucy gets progressively and progressively more drunk as the episode takes place because she's drinking this drug. Um, so on the surface, it seems less of a critique of capitalism and more of a critique how kind of the studios treated and drugged women at the time. And I, I give these two examples for a reason. Um, 
the Vitamina Vegemin episode was aired in 1952, which was a decade before Marilyn Monroe died of a drug overdose, and a decade after Judy Garland starred in The Wizard of Oz and said she was given these uppers and downers as part of that film and other films that she participated in. So it kind of falls squarely in the middle, um, maybe not in the middle, in the middle of these two examples, but it falls during the time where drugging actresses and exploiting, really heavily exploiting actresses, which still isn't, you know, cleared up today in the industry. Um, but just this heavy exploitation of women in the movie industry and in Hollywood and their use of drugs and drugging women. So kind of as an older, you know, person who's aware of what was happening during the era, this episode is really pointing out, because again, it's not just that she's shooting a vitamin commercial. It's that she's actively being drugged while shooting this vitamin commercial. It's for the product that she's shooting for, but it's still kind of like replicating and making a tongue in cheek jab at these studios, these bigger studios that were drugging MGM, right? That were drugging and abusing their actresses. And Lucy herself was able to escape this um, from what I, I know because she was the head and worked in her own studio, again, a larger independent studio, or it became the largest because of I Love Lucy. Um, this doesn't mean that she wasn't exposed. She worked as an actress. She worked in different things before she started um, Desilu production with her husband at the time. So this is something that she would have actively seen and she would have actively, actively been aware of. And so, uh, yeah, I, I see this episode as not just funny, but as, as really dark because it was pointing to something that people that were watching might not have been aware of, um, but was definitely something the industry was doing. And that was, again, the drugging and exploitation of actresses um, during this era in Hollywood. So I, I, <laughs> I don't really know how to end this besides leftists should love Lucy. She did a lot of revolutionary things. Um, I think denouncing communism. She, I don't even think she denounced communism. She just said she wasn't a communist. So I don't know if she said these ideals were bad, but I think that she's done plenty, like both in her depiction as being kind of like pro-worker in her show, being anti-exploitation, anti being um, pro-racial equality, um, saving Star Trek, right? Really kind of transforming the way we thought of the housewife and, and being maybe a covert, if not overt feminist in a lot of ways. Um, again, she might've shied away from the term feminist, but that's because she had to, but she definitely was groundbreaking. And I think she should be somebody that the, the left, um, embraces rather than, you know, poo-poos for, for saying she wasn't a communist. So that is my, <laughs> my, my whole feel on why leftists should love Lucy. Now onto our fourth segment, which is kind of reviewing, uh, the Maggie Fair Institute resources, um, something that might not be so well known is that we do have guest speakers. So if you'd ever like me or somebody else from our Institute to come speak to your class about something, um, or at an event, you can reach out to us and we would be very happy to do so. Um, I myself have a background in teaching. I've, I've done speaking. I was on a British TV show one time, like I zoomed in. It was very awkward for me. Um, I don't know if I do that again. Uh, well, I, I would zoom into like a classroom or something. I wouldn't necessarily want to do it at 5am and be on British TV. 
because that is scary. But I, I love speaking to classes and I would love to cover any of the topics we've covered here um, for the Maggie Fair Institute. You can find it in our blog post. I would be happy to speak about those um, or anything else, really. You could just reach out anything related to human rights and anti-capitalism. I would love to yeah, be a speaker in your classroom. Uh, you can reach us at exitcapitalismstageleft at gmail.com or through the contact us page on the maggiefairinstitute.org website. And finally, <laughs> we're going to get into uh, today's We Want to Hear From You segment where you guys send in questions. And the question today is, why do you hate Elon Musk so much? And this one does make me laugh. Um because it is kind of tongue-in-cheek on on my part. I don't know Elon Musk. I think he's a dick. Like, and obviously he's extraordinarily um, shitty to his workers. He heavily exploits, um, well, yeah, his workers, but also uh, kind of the, um, what is it called? Like the the, the space industry <laughs> and, and like inner space. I my, my degrees are in English, but he does take advantage of like these contracts. You know, he bought his way. He didn't invent the Tesla. He bought that technology and marketed it as him being a genius. The only thing Elon Musk has is money. And he got that money from his, you know, apartheid parents, emerald mines in South Africa. And the idea of a capitalist and I think this is why I, I joke about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos so much is because they are the idealized capitalists. They um, supposedly took the risk and they're the ones who are reaping the rewards, the profit, and they act like this is a meritocracy, like they did something. But no, they had backing from their parents. Without Elon Musk's parents' emerald bind, he'd be nowhere. He didn't invent anything. He didn't do anything besides actually tweet so much that Tesla had took away uh, his rights to tweet on their account. The guy literally just has money. The same thing with Jeff Bezos. They just have money. They have enough money and enough family support with their family money to be able to take multiple risks and then finally have one pan out to where they can act like they're these magical investment CEOs that like produced an amazing thing and therefore deserve what they've gotten, but they don't. They got to where they're at because of historic exploitation, which leads to current exploitation. So I hate Elon Musk because he embodies the capitalist system. And it's something that needs to be destroyed. Plain and simple. Thank you guys so much once again for listening to Exit Capitalism Stage Left. I have been your host, Amanda Riggle. And this podcast is brought to you by the Maggie Fear Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. I'll see you guys next month where I might try to get yet another Starbucks worker, a different Starbucks worker, uh, to come on and talk about their own experiences at Starbucks and what they think of the now like literally hundred and more stores that have started to unionize as well as the former CEO of Starbucks stepping down and the um, CEO before this last one coming back. I should probably know names. I don't know names. I don't care that much about CEOs, but it is interesting to see Starbucks changing tactics now that so many of their stores and so many of their workers are unionizing. Take care.